Sorry about that. Thank you, Tracy, for uh, reading all those difficult names for us. It's exactly why people are not super excited about volunteering to read scripture. <laughs> um, but you did a great job, so thank you. All right, so this week, uh, as you may have guessed from the passage that Tracy just read, um, we are continuing our sermon series on the life and character of King David. Um, and today, we arrive at a rather pivotal moment in his story. Uh, today, uh, David is finally recognized as the true king over all 12 tribes of Israel. Um, and recognize that it's been 23 years, roughly, since Samuel anointed David first uh, at his father's home. And today it finally is fully recognized. Um, but if we're paying attention, uh, we notice that today's text is a little bit odd. Uh, the writer of the book of Samuel seems to um, abandon his typical characteristic writing style up to this point, um, where he seems to have been interested in giving us um, just a layout of the details in chronological order. This particular passage uh, reads very differently. It, it, appears, uh, it appears to be like five sort of non-chronological paragraphs, just facts about David's uh, kingship that are kind of just mashed together. Um, it's like, if you were to find a scrapbook in the future of newspaper clippings about a particular president or something like that. Um, and the thread that is joining these various uh, newspaper clippings together uh, is the theme of God's promise to Abraham reaching a fulfillment in the placing of the kingdom in David's hands at this point in history. Um, Eugene Peterson put it this way, he said, at this point in the book, it's time to step back and recall the underlying plot of the story. Uh, God's salvation is being established. God's people are being formed into God's kingdom. And sometimes we can lose the forest for the trees and we get into all the details and all the weird stuff. Uh, we forget what's actually going on. And so, yes, uh, Saul has indeed forfeited his kingship because of his inability to listen to the Lord. Uh, whenever things got difficult or took too long for his liking, he abandoned God's plan and adopted his own. Rather than faithfully waiting for the Lord's promised plans to be brought to fruition, he couldn't seem to help letting his lack of faith get in the way. But Saul does not control the story. The underlying plot, again, is God's salvation being established. And God's plan to redeem and restore a people for himself, and then through that people to redeem and restore the world. This plan was first revealed to Abraham back in Genesis 12 and 15 when God made a covenant with him. Um, and so this is the plot that is unfolding, and the, and, uh, the author of Sam, the books of Samuel wants to remind us of that at this point. So contrary to what Saul believed, the author of Samuel is reminding us at this point in the story that God's promised plans are sure despite intense opposition 
despite the passage of time and despite human failure. Those are going to be the three sort of hooks um, as we look at this. So God's promised plans are sure despite intense opposition, despite the passage of time, and despite human failure. So we start with the intense opposition. All right, so as we uh, dive into our text, we notice that these, these first couple of newspaper clippings in uh, verses 1 to 5, uh, we see that seven and a half years have passed since the death of Saul and David's refusal to take the throne by force. Uh, he's been patiently waiting for the Lord to give him the kingdom. Um, and during that time, uh, he was recognized by Judah in the south as king. And so he's been ruling uh, in the southern kingdom from a city called Hebron. Um, but the ten tribes of the north have not recognized his kingship yet. And so there's been sort of a cold war taking place. Um, there's lots of saber-rattling and political posturing, particularly on behalf of the northern kingdom and uh, Saul's remnant of loyals. Um, and it comes bubbling to a head when David's general threatened to throw the whole situation back into turmoil. Uh, but thankfully, cooler heads prevailed. And we see that after this seven-and-a-half-year period, seven period uh, the elders of Israel come to David at Hebron, and they formally acknowledge him as their rightful king on the basis of three criteria. We see in verse 1 and 2 here. They say, Behold, we are, bone, we are your bone and flesh. So David is their bone and flesh, right? That he may not be of Saul's family or tribe, but he is of the right stock because he's a son of Israel. And so he is eligible by blood to be king. Next, they say that in times past when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And so they're acknowledging that David functionally, while Saul had been king, uh, for a good chunk of it, David was functionally leading them as a people. Um, and he had done so competently. And so, David is eligible also on the basis of his proven competence. And then lastly, and of greatest importance, uh, they say this, And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. And so, at long last, they acknowledge that it is God himself who had promised the throne to David. See, word had gotten out, uh, word had gotten around in the last 23 years or so since David had first been anointed by Samuel in secret. And if it was true, who could dare stand in the way? They had all just seen what had happened to Saul and his dynasty, trying to cling to the throne that didn't belong to them. And so they finally acquiesced to the will of the Lord and they anoint David as their king. And so... God's promised plans are sure despite even the most intense opposition. Um, and this can be hard, I think, for us to believe at times. Um, and I actually uh, sympathize with Saul, I think, in sometimes in his doubt and in his fear, as I'm sure many of you do as well. Um, you know, take, for example, one of the sweetest promises that God makes to his people in scripture uh, 
I mean, it's also one of the most trivialized and misapplied, but I digress. Um, we know that God has promised that uh, he's going to work together all things for the ultimate best outcome for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? And we know that from Romans 8. And we also know that we can rest secure in this promise because nothing in all the universe can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But what about tomorrow? What if he calls you to go through an intense trial? What if he allows you to suffer in some excruciating way? How are you going to feel about those promises tomorrow? Right, and when you slip into what feels like the bottomless pit of despair, when you mourn the loss of a loved one, when you're reeling from the news of a career lost or a terminal diagnosis, when the curse of sin and its remaining effects in this world threaten all that you hold dear and try to strip you of your faith in a God who never leaves you or forsakes you, even then, in the face of what seems like all the evidence to the contrary, no matter how hard it is to believe, God's promised plans are sure, despite the most intense opposition. And it's not because of David. <laughs> we'll see at the end. <laughs> All right, so God's promised plans are sure, despite the most intense op opposition. All right, so this brings us to point two. God's promised plans are also sure, despite the passage of time. So we come now to our second batch of newspaper clippings in uh, verses 6 to 10. And these are all about a city called Jerusalem and some big-talking people uh, called the Jebusites. Uh, now, all of Israel at this point is united under David's rule, and so he needs to set up a central place of government from which to rule this whole kingdom. He couldn't stay in Hebron because it's too far south. It's too far within the borders of the southern kingdom. Uh, it wasn't a practical location to rule the whole nation. Um, he needed something that was geographically central, but also politically neutral. And so Jerusalem was an obvious choice. Um, Jerusalem, whose name literally means city of peace. Uh, it sat on a hill, uh, right on the ridge of a hill between uh, the north and the south. And... Uh, the city had also never been occupied by either group, and so it didn't have any political history on either side. It also made it an um, ideal location for a new capital city. But there's only one problem. There are good reasons why this city had never been occupied by either Israel or Judah, and that was because it was the Jebusite stronghold. And the Jebusites, uh, they had a reputation they had come to believe their own reputation, that they were untouchable. Uh, somehow, they had managed to stay above the fray of the constant uh, warring and shuffling of territories that uh, all of their neighbors were constantly engaged in. They managed to remain uh, safe within their brilliantly equipped fortress. Um, and so this attitude that they're untouchable drips uh, in their taunt to David when he basically says that 
uh, even the blind and lame here could hold off your attack, right? You'll, you'll never be able to touch us. Um, and this wasn't so much a comment on their understanding of David's military skill. It was misplaced confidence in the genius of their own designs and defenses. Um, but we'll see that they actually were pretty genius. So a walled city on a ridge is tough uh, to launch an assault against at the best of times, right? Because they have the high ground, they have a 360 degree view around the fortress and they can anticipate basically anything that you're gonna launch at them and uh, develop counter tactics. Um, and this wasn't particularly unusual in these times. And so uh, the nations at, at these times, they learned that these, while these hills were, these hill cities were ideal for defending from within, they had some major drawbacks. And one of them were the fact that because they're on the ridge of a hill, they're necessarily small. There's not a lot of space there. Um, and so all their food production had to happen outside of the cities on terraced land. Um, and so these small cities didn't have a lot of room for, to store food in. They didn't produce much food from within the cities. But even more importantly, water flows downhill. And so ordinarily, they would also be cut off from a fresh water supply. Um, and so when this was the case, ordinarily, all you would have to do was lay a siege against a city like this, and uh, the people inside would run out of resources within weeks. But there was something special about Jerusalem. All the surrounding nations have learned to leave the Jebusites alone because for some reason, they seem impervious to siege tactics. Um, they seem to thrive inside their city, no matter how long you kept them shut in. So surely, they had some really powerful gods on their side, and they should just be left alone. But David suspected that the Jebusites actually had a trick up their sleeve. Um, it's verse 8. David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and blind who are hated by David's soul. Now, we have no idea how David figured this out. Uh, whether God revealed it to him by way of an angel or a prophet or a vision, or whether he was just investigating a brilliant hunch. Um, our text doesn't say, but somehow David discovered, or figured out rather, that the Jebusites uh, had come up with this marvel of modern engineering, um, and they had come up with a way to access fresh water from within the city walls. And so David goes looking for this source. And it turns out that the, the Gihon Spring bubbled up underground and came spilling out of the rock well outside of the city walls. But the Jebusites had dug a tunnel flowing back into the heart of the mountain. Um, and then from there, there was a vertical shaft that went up to a series of tunnels and stairways that came down from the center of the city. And so while they were trapped and ensieged, they could be walking around these tunnels underneath the walls, right underneath their enemies and going to get fresh water. Um, and they could outlast almost any military occupation with this system in place. Um, and these, this, a lot of this was not really understood for a very long time because these um, shafts and tunnels had been lost for so long, but it wasn't until actually um, curiously, 1867, when a British archaeologist named Sir Charles Warren uh, 
discovered this shaft in an archaeological dig. Um, and it's, it's been known ever since as Warren's Shaft. Pretty interesting. At any rate, um, they were too confident, the Jebusites, in their own genius. And they were too confident no one else would figure out what was going on. And so, obviously, they didn't guard themselves very well. Uh, because though our text skips over the details pretty quickly, uh, apparently what David did was lead his army up this water shaft and into the middle of the city under the cover of darkness where the battle would have been over before it was even started. And the city has been known as the city of David ever since. Um, and so what's all this got to do with God's promises being sure despite the passage of time, you may be asking. Um, well, yes, finally, with this, uh, the capture of Jerusalem, uh, David's uh, kingship is formalized uh, after roughly 23 years in the waiting. But even more amazing is that this particular victory had been promised to Abraham 800 years earlier. Um, if we listen to God's covenant with Abraham from Genesis 15, he said, On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river of the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and finally, the Jebusites. And so in our text today, David finally fulfills this promise that had been made to Abraham 800 years earlier, proving that God's promised plans are sure despite the passage of time. Uh, they are sure, they are certain, even when they don't happen in our timing. Um, and again, this is something that can be really difficult for us uh, to hold on to, especially when we desperately want God to act in our timing. Um, but it's no less true then. Uh, which brings us to our final point, which is that God's promised plans are sure despite human failure. Um, and before we jump too far ahead in our text, we see uh, in verse 9 that David took the city of Jerusalem and he vastly improved it. So he, they had this incredible design, the system. He thought that's fantastic, but I figured out how to get in here and you're pretty vulnerable. So uh, we see that in verse 9, David goes beyond the terraced farmland, builds another set of outer walls, and then builds the city inward from there. So now their food production, their water source, everything was within the walls of this amazing city. Um, and through this, David establishes himself as this great leader. Um, and so, yeah, we get this, this line that seems almost a throwaway comment unless we take it uh, paired with verse 12. So verse 10 says, and David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. So this is between historical details. Um, but it's actually deeply connected to the final section. Um, verse 12 says, And David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. And so the point the author is making here, with those two verses, is that... The Lord is blessing David immensely. 
but he's doing so so that David will be a blessing to his people and so that his people then will be a blessing to the nations, right? He's not doing this simply uh, to spoil David. It's not for personal gain. Um, and yet, what does the line that is sandwiched right in between these two verses say? Verse 11 says, And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons who built David a house. So first thing to note here is that this is a big step out of chronology. Uh, Hiram, the king of Tyre's trade relationship with David, didn't actually develop until much later in his kingship. Um, and so the, the, the point the author is making here is not that this man came to build David a house right away. Um, but rather, if we consider that this little tidbit is bookended between these references to the kind of king that David is supposed to be, I think it's easy to see that the author is emphasizing the fact that over time, David begins personally enjoying the benefits of his success a little too much, and that he begins to abandon his responsibility to rule as an under-shepherd of the Lord. All right, then we jump ahead to our final verses um, in 13 to 16. And again, the chronology is off because the Jerusalem children are born over decades that follow. Um, but uh, what, these, what this illustrates yet again is the temptation that David faced and eventually succumbed to, to use his position for personal gain rather than to be the servant leader that he was called to. And so Samuel had warned the people all the way back in 1 Samuel 8, when they begged him to give them a king, he said, you do not want a human king. Human kings suck. <laughs> Every single time, what happens is even if they start well, they finish poor because they always end up taking far more than they give. And when they do, you will have no power to do anything about it. Right? And so... This, this is simply what simple human kings always do, right? There's this, the saying that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Um, it's a, or a, a saying for a reason, right? And so the last couple of verses here really expose David's Achilles heel. It is his wandering eye and his penchant for fathering sons that will ultimately be his undoing. Uh, in more ways than one. First, in his crimes against Bathsheba and Uriah, and then later in his own home and family descending into chaos with his own son Absalom trying to kill him. So sadly, uh, we know all too well that as goes the human king, so goes the kingdom generally. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. This is the story of Israel. But we also know that no amount of opposition and no amount of time passed and no amount of catastrophic human failure can thwart the to fruition. And so thankfully, though the promise to Abraham had been fulfilled in one sense in David, it reaches further fulfillment in Christ, the true Messiah, the heir of David who will sit on the throne of the new Jerusalem for eternity, withstood every temptation that life could throw at him and yet remained without sin 
right? He's the one who persevered in the face of more intense opposition than you or I would, could ever imagine, right? He's the one who committed himself to doing the will of the Father rather than his own will, no matter what that was and no matter when it would happen. He's the one who, instead of stacking up personal gain, poured himself out in love for the world. He gave his very life to be a blessing to all nations so that we, his church, his body, would be a blessing to all nations as well. And his kingdom cannot be shaken. His promises and plans are sure, despite intense opposition, the passage of time, and human failure. As goes the king, so goes the kingdom. And then thank God that Christ Jesus is the king, now and forever. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that in Jesus Christ, we can be reminded and have confidence in the fact that your promised plans never fail. Not in the face of opposition, Lord, not in the face of the passage of time, and certainly not due to our flaws and failures. Lord, you are the same yesterday, today, tomorrow. There is no shadow of changing you. You are our king, and your kingdom is forever. Amen.